You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Lord, please Don't break my heart Cause it can get hard I'm praying like, Lord, please I run from the dark, no gas in this car to take me away oh, Fighting all these demons, let me go Soon as I escape, I feel alone Last year got me on the edge, I'm so, I'm so overread I just need to break it down and flip it Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio, as well as every podcast in the world except for one. I am your host, David Kirk Philp, but you may call me Professor David Kirk Philp. I am usually here with Dr. Esteban Marconi. He is on assignment today. We'll have a guest shortly, Rich Scott DePerto, who is the VP of Royalties and Copyright Administration at Reservoir Media Management. A couple quick things for you. Go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Follow us, sign up for the newsletter. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on uh, LinkedIn at MusicBiz101WP. You can find me on LinkedIn, David Philp. We should also give some thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown, Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. You want to go to VB CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine Oive, a wealth manager, the Forefront Group. That's Forefront with an F-O-U-R. Christine has helped professionals all over the world, as well as amateurs, manage their investments, plan out for the retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, you want to think about the Forefront Group and you want to go to Christine at Forefront.com. Two quick things. First of all, William Patterson University, you may call it the University of William Patterson. It has been ranked again, as always, by Billboard Magazine as one of the best in the world, one of the best music business programs in all of the world. And finally, Managing Your Band, seventh edition. It is out now. You can buy it. You should buy it. There's a hardcover version out for like $10,000. Maybe you don't need that, but there is a soft cover version out that you can find for it in the $30 range. We talk about all sorts of stuff from what are the things we talk about? We talk, well, a main thing that was not in a version one through six is publishing. And today we're going to talk about music publishing with Rich Scott DiPerto, who is on with us right now. Rich DiPerto, here we are. Rich, thanks so much for joining us on Music Biz 101 and more. Much appreciated. Of course. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. And uh, I think we want to start. Let me just give everybody this I got off your website, just a brief of what Reservoir is, and then we can kind of take it from there. I can ask you some questions, even just about how the description of the company reads. So it says Reservoir is an independent music company based in New York, LA, Nashville, Toronto, London, Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. It's it was or is the first US-based publicly traded independent music company. I know it's on the NASDAQ. And it's also the first female-founded and led publicly traded music company in the U.S. Let's see. The company has grown to represent over 130,000 copyrights, 36,000 mass recordings with titles dating back as far as 1900, when you and I were, we were just very small children at the time. And um, there are hundreds of number one releases worldwide. So my, 
my first question is in this, and I think a lot of people read things like this and they might not understand everything. It said you guys represent over 136, I'm sorry, 130,000 copyrights. So what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. So copyrights uh, on the, on the publishing side, cause we are a label as well. Um, so those are going to be compositions um, that our songwriters either composed during our term or we acquired at some point they were written prior to our term. So those are compositions that we control in certain territories throughout the world, some U.S. only, some worldwide, some U.K. only, and so on and so forth. Okay. And then we say 36,000 original sound recordings. So talk about that because that is something, is that a, I know you guys bought Chrysalis um, I know you bought Tommy Boy recently for $100 million. So uh, talk about then when Reservoir got into the sound recording side of it. Yeah, I mean, it was um, in 2019, beginning of 2019, we decided that we were going to do an acquisition with Chrysalis. I think it was a great first partner of ours to kind of venture out into that label front. And um, Chrysalis is a, is a UK-based label. Um, you know, it's led by uh, Jeremy and Robin. Um, uh, Malar. So they basically, you know, we wanted to partner with someone that made the most sense for us. And those two were something that, you know, came along, we got along with them, hit it off right off the bat and, um, you know, started the partnership that way. And that, you know, that came with some really great hits from the seventies, eighties and nineties that I'm sure you and I are both very familiar with. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was interesting because it wasn't just UK based. Some of the stuff did kind of translate over to the U S but you know, that's how we got into it. And then in um, June of this year, or I should say June of, uh, yeah, June of this year, we acquired Tommy Boy. Um, it all kind of blends together now with COVID. But yeah, we acquired Tommy Boy Records, which is, you know, uh, you know 90s hip hop based, uh, some dance and electronic music uh, mixed in there. Um, but, you know, some really, really great, great hits. House of Pain is in there, De La Soul's in there, and so on and so forth. Was the point of buying Tommy Boy to number one, expand the... Uh, the sound recording side of the business and then also to diversify beyond what chrysalis was and is yes yeah you could say that um i think it was a combination of probably both the decision made the most sense you know we had known tom silverman who was the owner for a while again someone who we had partnered with on a few things in the past and you know it was it, it made the most sense you look in estelle and it was a great opportunity to diversify the catalog as you said and Sort of get a whole new scope of copyrights in that we wouldn't have got before um you know everything is managed out in new york um this was a new york label so it only made even more sense to do it now are they both active still are they both still signing new artists or are they uh, is it strictly catalog that you're uh, working yeah i mean the initial was just the catalog but you know we are always looking uh, it's always an opportunity to do something like that but um you know, we, we kind of built the team around the creative, you know, team around and administrative team around the current catalog, and then we'll build out from there. But uh, as of right now, it's you know just current current things. We own. Well, I mean, we own it. We are the company. You know, we bought out Tommy Boy. We are Chrysalis. Chrysalis is basically our label front. Um, but you know, it's it, what I'm saying is that we're we're kind of got the base now, right? You need a little bit of a catalog so that you can move forward with some future stuff and start signing new artists. But um, you know, it's always a possibility, but currently right now, it's just catalog legacy. You guys are working the catalog and like what, what you just said, from there, you're going to, eventually the concept is, and correct me if I'm wrong, make Chrysalis an active label out there and signing new artists and, and going to radio and doing all the things that labels do. Yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. Um, you know, we're still working out with Tommy Boyd to be such a new venture of ours, but yeah, that that's really what we want to do. We want to build the label. Um, as it comes and, and sort of fold in things that make the most sense. So how is the entire structure of Reservoir put together? I know you obviously, we just talked about sound recording and CF publishing. What on either side, what is the structure? What are the layers? Who's doing what? We, we kind of do a lot out of New York, right? Uh, it, it's kind of the classical view of things, right? You have a, a royalties team that handles, you know, publishing royalties, a royalties team that handles master royalties it kind of my side of things the administration team it kind of we kind of handle both right i think the accounting and the administration always sort of bleed up into each other somehow but we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of bifurcate the two companies in the way that you know we have 
a marketing person dedicated just to the master side, a marketing person dedicated to the publishing side. And I think after that, you know, you have uh, your creatives, your A&Rs that do a little bit of both. Um, a lot of it is sort of just intertwined. We don't really kind of separate out the companies very often. Like I said, most things are out of New York, so I'm kind of seeing both sides, which is a great part of my role. So, you know, any royalties that come through are going to come through uh, New York and we're going to process them as such. So the company structure, I mean, if I had to like really just dumb it down, right, outside of upper management, you have sort of, you know, royalties, copyright licensing. That would be under my department. We have a marketing team. Actually, one of the only music publishers that actually has a marketing team for publishing. Um, we have a finance team that doesn't just handle sort of the accounting aspects of things, but also handles the deal sourcing things. Uh, we, you know, we're a very financial-based company, so we like to value deals as they come in, not just on a creative basis, but also on a financial basis. What is this song worth? What will it do 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? And what is it worth to us now? Um, and then, you know, from there, we have the usual stuff, which I, I believe your background is in, which is A&R. Um, we're making sure that we're going out there and signing active writers and active, or active artists. Um, that also comes with, you know, sort of the uh, relationships that bring in some legacy stuff, um, some some really great old stuff that we can kind of lump into and build a catalog up on. But yeah, basic structure there for you, if, the, if that helps. That's kind of the uh, top level approach. My next question is, because I'm, I'm looking at your your background and everybody who's listening to this can't see what I see, but it looks like you're at home from your home office. Tell me about um, Reservoir. You're based in New York. Uh, where do you live? Um, not your actual address, or you could give us your address and social security number and then good luck to you. <laughs> uh, where are you living? And then what is your uh, office status for Reservoir? Sure. I, I'm living currently in Emerson, New Jersey, which is in Bergen County, New Jersey, not too far from Willie P itself. Um, I'm, I'm from the area. I'm from Dumont, which is not too far away. And um, my current office status, we're, we're based in Soho, uh, right on, you know, kind of the cusp of Soho and Tribeca on Houston and Varick. But we haven't been in there for, uh, I guess, now about a year and a half. We're slowly going back in now. So, you know, it's uh, sort of tailored to certain days a week. Some people are going there three, four days a week. Certain people are there all all five days a week. Uh, I'm currently, I'm currently still home. Okay. Yeah. Cause uh, everybody seems to be doing it sort of in a different way. I know certain companies that were about to go back and then they didn't go back and they're in big office buildings and they're still trying to figure out how do we get people, all these people to go up on elevators to go up to like the 36th floor, you know, things like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All interesting stuff. So, okay. So right now you're so cool. Um, let's get back to, where we are with the music publishing space and where we've been, I guess, for the last couple of years with it's very acquisition friendly. A lot of companies either within or without the, or outside of the music industry are valuing music publishing uh, quite highly compared to where they had been in the past. And you see companies like Merck Mercuriatus with um, hypnosis. I think he's raised more than $2 billion to make purchases um, Reservoir has has done that as well recently. Like I know you bought, besides the two labels that we just talked about, you bought the Joni Mitchell catalog not too long ago. So where is Reservoir when it comes to all of this excitement and activity related to purchasing existing catalogs by artists or other companies? Yeah, I mean, you can see from our track record, we do a little bit of both. You mentioned Joni Mitchell. I mean, you know, that's an admin deal um, that we've done and, and a great one really, really happy to have Joni's catalog on board. And I think we're going to do a great job. But, you know, we've also done acquisitions like um, Shapiro Bernstein. That was that was done in April 2020, where we we got a 100-year-old catalog and, and publisher uh, from 10 Pan Alley days. And we made it make, you know, more money than it did in the past two years. Um, and it just basically is something that we're looking at on both ends. Um, if it makes sense for us, you know, creatively and financially, I think we're all like, we're all game for it. Now, with regards to Merck and, and sort of that acquisition process, obviously, you know, it's it's been somewhat of a high thing. Multiples have been up in the 20s, um, something that's pretty unreasonable for, for a classical look at the industry. I don't think that's something, you know, that we're looking to really do here. Um, but, you know, given that there are sort of bidding wars um, that, that go on for certain catalogs, and look, if we think it makes sense, we're going to fight for it, you know, if we really, really want it. So we'll, we'll be as competitive as we possibly can within logical and reasonable means. 
that's interesting because we had um, Larry Mistel, who runs Primary Wave at yeah. Patterson a couple of years ago, and he gave a really interesting discussion about the multiples. Can you explain just for some of our listeners when you say the word multiples, what does that? Can you explain what that means first of all? Uh, sure, it's either an average or the past year of sort of the net, the NPS of a certain catalog in, in relation to publishing or NLS if, if you're talking about a label. And you basically multiply that by a certain number. Um, you know, classically, that number's been around eight to ten um, times the number that you would purchase the catalog for, based on that that either average or last year's NPS NLS. But you know, in most recent years, past few years especially, it's been up towards twenty. Okay, a good example. I was talking with somebody recently who actually is a is a songwriter, and he's written hits, um, pretty big hits, and. This person has earned uh, at times over the last, I think, three years around half a million dollars each year in revenue from his uh, writer share publishing. And so we were looking at different multiples. Let's say he decided to sell, you know, and we did a 20 times multiple. And that would be like $10 million that he could sell potentially his catalog for. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about multiples and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. His NPS was $500,000. You know, whether it be the average of the past three years or that last year, uh, multiplying that by 20 times uh, would give you a $10 million purchase price. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. So you just, you know, put that in perspective. Ten years ago, that was going for five. Now it's going for ten. Do you see it continuing in this fashion or do you see this? uh, Do you think we're sort of in a bubble and, you know, three months, five months, a year? We're going to be back down to say 15% multiples on average as opposed to these higher 20 plus. I, I mean, it's really hard to say. I don't have a crystal ball. What, what I will say is that um, the industry is growing. It's not, you know, it's not shrinking. There was time there, uh, you know, especially was it 12 years ago, right after the financial crisis that, you know, we didn't really know we were going to be the inflection point with streaming hadn't really caught up to the you know fall in physical sales and, and digital downloads um that's that since this turned around you know with spotify launch and, and apple and other streaming platforms that's come around and i would say we're very hopeful with the most recent things that have happening uh, in the industry like we've recently done a deal uh with roblox and you know there's deals that are being done with snap and uh triller and twitch and you know you can go all you can be done on the list we two years ago we did a deal with facebook um, these new revenue streams have sort of not only met that inflection point that we lost out on with physical and digital downloads, but we've well exceeded it. Um, it it's become a great time to be in the industry, I think, and, and very interesting time to be in because the classical way of, you know, 9.1 cents, which is the statutory rate for a download or, or a sale has gotten to a point of like a, a willing seller, willing buyer sort of approach to things and, um, you know, percentage of revenue. Um, as the company grows, a percentage of um, sales has become more of a, of a statutory rate, if you will, than, than the actual sale of the good itself, um, because, you know, it's really hard to sort of monetize intangible goods. But we're doing so on a, on a, a very large scale, especially with YouTube. Um, you know, that's been something that we've had a license. We were one of the first independent music publishers with a license back in 2012. In fact, our president flew out to a conference in, in Las Vegas to get the license done. Um, it was pretty crazy. So, you know, I think with those new licensing things, we're hopeful, but I, with regard to multiples and, and that's going to come down, I mean, it's really just market optics, um, not something I really have my, my finger on very often. Well, it's interesting because maybe they do stay at this for a level because Warner Music, for example, in their, by the way, we're recording this at the end of October, 2021 and uh, Warner's recent results, which they maybe put out, I want to say at the end of September, for example, stated that their overall, out of their overall recorded music revenue number, a the largest percentage ever for them came from outside sources, meaning not just from Spotify, for example, but and not just from Sync, but from some of the things you talked about from social media like Facebook and Roblox uh, to TikTok to Twitch. So there are up uh, to Peloton and all these yeah. other companies that are now using music and the industry is able to now finally start monetizing all those uses. For example, like Twitch, uh, Roblox, 
what's the other one? Peloton, you know, what they do is they go to a market, they illegally use music until they get caught, until there's a big enough lawsuit, and then they can settle and the money starts coming in. So it's almost like all these markets are starting to hit different um, maturation rates. And and now that's finally starting to come in. Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a good soundbite from David Israelite, who's the head of the NMPA. Um, he basically said that one third or nearly one third of our revenue in 2020 was from uh, licensees that hadn't been licensed prior to us going after them, right? You know, people who were using music illegally that didn't think they needed to pay either through DMCA or otherwise. And we were just just doing deals with them one by one. And now they've made up in, in U.S. revenue, his figure he gave in U.S. revenue for the whole publishing market, nearly one third. That's a, you know, that's a good soundbite. That's a good stat. Uh, it's not only good for him, but it's good for us, right? That's one third of revenue that we wouldn't have otherwise had if it wasn't for people like NMPA and, and, and Reservoir. You were part of most of those things going after them, being diligent about it. And that's one of the crazy things. That's why I said it's exciting to be working. It's not about checking SoundScan on sales anymore, you know, like we used to do. Like we used to check, you know, how many streams we get, how many sales we make. Um, it's, it's all about who's using our music illegally and how can we make some money for them, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. And, and that says something about the industry. I mean, you, you made mention of uh, Woodsy, we're 2021. So going back to 2004, which was back then, we'd say 2004, when the industry just tanked to uh, where it is now, you know, we'll call it 17, 18 years later. And um, it's, it's, you see all these other sources of revenue. It's a very exciting place to be. And that's why Universal Music Group went public this year. You guys went public this year, you know? So there's a reason why you guys are going public in that and why these multiples are so high is because so many companies, like we said, at the inside and outside the industry really value music, whether it's recorded music or the underlying song, which is the publishing. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely right. I think more people see value in music and they realize that, you know, there are royalties and songwriters behind music, right? They understand that a song is worth something. And it really drives it home when, you know, you go on these platforms that people who aren't in the industry or who aren't musicians, like YouTube and, and, and like Facebook, they go on there and they hear music, they consume music. They didn't, you know, I don't think they really realized before that there was actually royalty bearing behind there. But as we get that out there, as the education of that becomes more widely known, I think it becomes a little easier for us to sort of approach companies like this. And there's, you know, there's plenty that haven't been licensed yet, right? I, I, we're still going after. Um, but, you know, for those that have, I think it's been, yeah, we don't have the system to put in place to get you royalties, but we'll get there. In the meantime, can you take this sum of money as a minimum royalty guarantee or as an advance or however they want to structure it? Because um, they realize that, you know, they are using people, people's rights, they're, they're, they're exploiting people's rights, and they know they need to pay for them, which is, you know, that's nice. Um, it's, it's nice to see that because I think it's been ignorant in the past. But hopefully, I'm, like I said, I'm hopeful that we can keep doing this. And that's, uh, you know, the pushback we get is on a professional level. But um, yeah, all in all, I think it's good. And the outlook is good. But, you know, like anything else, you said bubble before, I don't know how long you can sustain something. <laughs> this high for this long, but uh, until the next thing comes along, right? You know, from H tracks and tapes and tapes to CDs, CDs, digital downloads and to streaming. It's, what's next? Yeah, um, like when uh, the CD came out, like we were thinking that there was going to be a thing called a download or streaming, you know, and now we're it's streaming, whatever's next. And somebody, somebody's going to be listening to this and they're probably saying out loud, NFTs, NFTs. And I, you know, I don't know if you want to get into NFTs, but I, I don't think that's the thing. I think that's a a thing, but I don't think that's anything that's going to take over, um, you know, where we are with with just the run of the real regular consumer who's listening to music and consuming music. Yeah. So just to end the last point and get into NFTs is, you know, I don't think that people in the industry are as sort of it'll go away ignorant type anymore is what I was what I was trying to say before. You remember, like in 04, nobody thought Napster would be a thing. Nobody thought LimeWire would be a thing. They kind of dismissed it. You know, CDs are still around. They were still selling and sales were up. I don't think that's the case anymore. You know, we realize that things change. And as they change, we want to move with it. Segway to NFTs. We don't know if that's the future. But if they're going to start using our copyrights, whether it be on the record side or on the publishing side, we're, we're going to, you know, try to monetize it. 
and we're going to go after wherever those NFTs are made or sold. Um, that's as far as you know NFTs are really going for us in the industry right now because it's very early days with that stuff. But if there's an intellectual property being used, we want to be there. We want to know about it. So we definitely are watching out for it. We are tracking it. Um, but you know, nothing, nothing's really materialized as of yet with the industry as a whole. Well, I think you bring up a really good point about monetizing the NFTs because I did listen to a podcast recently with Dina Lapolt, who is a big music industry attorney. And she made a good point about NFTs that a lot of people who are putting these deals together do not understand that there, if there is a music component to that, there has to be a license or there has to be a royalty payment to whomever owns a sound recording. And this is the part that everybody forgets. There's a, the sound recording, what we hear, and there's the underlying song, the composition, the melody, the, the chords, whatever, which is where you come in. And I don't think people understand that two sides to a song. And I don't think they understand really they're getting an NFT. I don't think they understand that everything has to be licensed. Everything has to be legal. And I think that's where there will eventually be more growth. Yeah. That matures as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, you know, it's a lot easier for people to understand the record side. You, you know that, right? I mean, most people would see, they understand there's an artist and they understand there's a song, the recording. Nobody really understands that there's a composition or a song, right? Um, it's really hard for people to grasp that, I think, because the, you know, the industry is 50-50. But for the most part, when you're talking about your favorite artist, you're not saying, oh, my favorite songwriter is, you know, for the average person, it's, it's, it's kind of tough. Um, you know, unless that artist is a songwriter, of course. But yeah, you know, anytime, the good news is if they use a sound recording and they don't spoof it and there's no sort of fair use there, we can go, we can go after it and any derivative of that sound recording, right? As a music publisher, we kind of follow the dollar. But NFTs are weird, man. You know, we don't know what that's going to be like. You know, it's, <laughs> at this point right now, it, it could be anything. I mean, you know, it's been pictures. It's, it, it, you know, sound bites. It's been gifts. I mean, there's really, it's endless. We really don't know where it's going to be. But we do make sure that we are tracking our, because we have to, right? We, we have to make sure that our compositions, as well as our sound recordings, are tracked across the internet. Um, we have companies to help us with that, um, you know, illegal uses or, regular uses. Our sync team is constantly tracking stuff like that to make sure that we're licensed on certain TV shows or certain, you know, internet platforms. Um, so the biggest, I think, benefit um, to YouTube is that, right? If anyone's going to put anything on the internet, usually winds up on YouTube. So we'll, we'll get it there, right? You know, Spotify being the default for audio only. So I think, I think with those two, we'll, we'll just, we'll have to see, just have to see where it goes. But I never thought YouTube would be as big as it is for, for royalties. I mean, I think when I was at Razor and Tie, so it was like 07, 08, it was, it was coming in, right? YouTube royalties were coming in. We were seeing earnings from them. But it wasn't until 2012 the publishing industry saw it. And I think, you know, our first check might have been something ridiculous, like $50. And, and now, you know, YouTube itself as an industry in the U.S. represents over 10% of, of U.S. publishers' revenue for, from, you know, via NMPA. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. It, it went from, you know, zero to a hundred pretty fast. Yeah. And it's interesting because we can touch upon the inequities right now between songwriters, uh, publishers, and uh, sound recording copyright owners, which is actually a big deal going on right now in the industry because uh, you mentioned the statutory rate earlier, which is 9.1 cents, and that's a mechanical royalty when someone downloads a song or purchases vinyl or a CD, a mechanical royalty is generated and per song that's 9.1 cents. But in a world of streaming where streaming is over 80% of the market, that 9.1 cents calculates down to a percentage of a percentage of a penny. You know, it's, it's very tiny. And where the inequity is, is how much of a stream, when you stream a song on Spotify, how much goes to Reservoir and then how much goes to the songwriter, how much goes to the performance rights organization, ASCAP, BMI, and then ultimately you, and then how much goes to the sound recording copyright owner and a large percentage, it's, um, I don't know if it's like 87, 89%, something like that of the revenue that comes out of a stream that isn't held by Spotify, for example, goes to the sound recording owner and you're splitting a very small percentage of a very small number 
with the pros. So maybe, and which isn't fair compared to the sound recording. Did that make sense? What I just said? Yeah. I mean, the, you're, you're right. They're fractions of a penny here. Um, I think, you know, in some cases the label would make out more so than the publisher. There's, there's, there's a couple components to think about there, there though. Uh, one is, you know, they have marketing behind the actual use itself. The publisher is sort of that passive interest. In some cases we have marketing. Behind it. Um, there's also the fact that we get domestic performance revenue for terrestrial radio and they don't, right? There, there is no, there is no U.S. right for terrestrial radio like there is outside of the U.S. for neighboring rights. So we're we're getting the benefit of that. So you know, when everything's said and done, I think things are are, are sort of equal. There's a lot of inequities that we're trying to address with Congress. You know, and make sure that we're getting everything that we can. And you know, we agree that the labels, obviously being a label, but also before we were a label, we agree the label should be paid a terrestrial radio rate. Um, we also agree that our rate for streaming should be higher. Um, and we're in copyright royalty board uh, hearings and we're giving data to the NMPA and anybody else who's lobbying for us to make sure that we can get that rate up. The DSPs have just recently come back and answered our reply. Like we won a court case in, in, in 2016 that was supposed to raise our increase, our streaming rate by about 45% over five years. They disputed that, they appealed it, gone back and forth in litigation. They've now counteroffered or given their counterproposal to our proposal and it's lower than it was five years ago. <laughs> you know, So we're in this constant battle where we're sort of asking for more, DSPs are asking for less. And at the same time, every other year, the labels are doing the same thing. So we're caught up in this, this constant battle of who should get more, but you know, at the end of the day, it's really the DSPs who are pushing this number either way um, or holding it hostage either way. But yeah, I mean, look, the mechanical, mechanical rate is extremely low. Um, you know, it's the greater of three things. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not the greatest. We were supposed to be at, you know, it's like 10 and a half percent of revenue. We were supposed to be at EdRip. We were supposed to be up up towards 15. Now, you know, that, that was the logical progression. of it. And they've kind of squashed it. It's been that way since we started this negotiation. And we're hoping that it goes up. But, you know, I, I, I really, I really just have to be hopeful at this point. It's, uh, it's unfortunate the way the DSPs have come back and appealed our proposal or sort of counter-proposed with something that's pretty, pretty low, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, it's totally from a publisher and songwriter perspective, extremely unfair that they are told to pay a certain amount. They say, no, we don't want to do it. In fact, we'll pay you less. And I think what's going to happen is if they keep pushing this lower, lower number and they keep getting that low number, um, they know they're not going to end up at that lower number. But if they can go back to kind of where they were at the start of all this, um, they'll be able to say, well, we gave in and everybody and make you guys, you know, the NMPA think that they actually won out because they got them up from this lower number. I think it's probably some very good negotiating. And if um, the settlement turns out to be far less than what the copyright royalty, royalty board had said that it was going to be, then, you know, they may win out ultimately in the end. But this is probably going to be protracted even further. And if you got if but if it does go up a little bit, if you guys can get some retro pay going back, that would at least well, help that, too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, look, CRV3 is the one I was talking about. We're in CRV4, but both are going to be retroactive um, to the beginning of, of it all happening. Um, that, that, that much we have to push for, you know, because we actually won this case. We all, all, most people had projected earnings to increase by that 45% I just mentioned over the course of five years on streaming, especially. Now it has because of volume, but not because of the rate. You know, it, it's something that we, we have to make sure that we're going back retroactively and getting that money and, and saying, look, the, on the counter proposal that DSPs made, you, at face value, you could say, oh, look, it's better, right? I think one of them, I forget which, which DSP might have been Apple, came back and said, you know, we'll give you 11%, which is like, you know, half a point higher. But if you read the fine print, there's a lot of deductions that come off that half percent. And again, you get right below 10.5% again. So, you know, I'm not the best to talk about sort of the race structure there. David Israelite, I think, does a really good job of it. But the point is, is that they're trying to throw little things in there to be creative, as you just mentioned, um, you know, to get us to agree to something that clearly does not, you know, it, it falls in the face of songwriters. And it, it clearly does not 
show the benefit of willing to work with us on something like this. It's quite the opposite. And it's interesting because one thing, and I'll go back to Merck Mercuriatus because he came to William Patterson as well last year and he spoke. Oh, about, he did. And yeah, and he's he said some other things that actually make sense. He, um, three, the three largest publishers or three of the largest music publishers, Warner Chapel, Universal, and Sony Music are owned by companies that are the three largest recorded music companies. So yeah. it's built into them. How hard do they want to fight for the music publishing when the money will ultimately come out of the recorded music side? This payment has to come out of somewhere. So from their perspective, as, as these giant companies, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, how hard do they want to fight? So it comes down to Reservoir, uh, uh, just Song Trust or, or Downtown, or I, I forget who owns who anymore. You know, but, but you know, the, the mini majors, you know, Concord maybe, and all the others um, to, to push and, and fight this battle possibly harder than you know, the three because the others are sort of have a conflict of interest in there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, with the majors, it's always sort of like that two-way street, right, where they can, you know, say, oh, we will give you a little bit less on the publishing, but they're going to take it up on the master side. I, I, you know, we as a community sometimes do deals outside of the majors. Uh, you know, we've had to let the majors kind of do their own thing with certain players, um, you know, Peloton being one of them, Roblox being another. Let them negotiate the rates there. But I think where most people are wising up is with the most favored nation clauses. We, you know, most publishers won't agree to anything, not MFN, um, us being one of them. Uh, so we're actually getting the benefit of that. But as you said, that's not across, that's not across, you know, the industry. That's, that's just across publishing. So, you know, maybe that's an evolution. You know, maybe, maybe we, we start doing that. Um, but again, with the inequalities and with the disparities there, you really have to take into account a few factors. Like, as I mentioned at the top with regards to terrestrial radio fact that they are marketing these these artists and sending them out so as a label we kind of have to see the two sides of the coin there on 360 rights but in any case we we, we have to go after the, the source and the source is dsps and like you said it has to come from somewhere but why not the dsps it's still a percentage of their revenue you know what i mean um and and that's a good you know example of mlc which is funded by the dsps so we, we got them to agree to that to share a back office to pay us royalties on a monthly basis to monetize things that you know, wouldn't have been monetized, pending an unmatched royalties of over $400 million, agree to that and get that to us. Um, you know, so th there is some compromise here, but with regards to the rate, it seems like we're just in a circle. Um, it's very frustrating. It's interesting, but you mentioned compromise, but if they owed $400 million, you know, it's not a <laughs> they owed you guys this money, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, look, I don't have sympathy on that, but I do. I do realize it is a, you know, it's hard sometimes to find songwriters and publishers or rights holders on the side. The reason why we had the Lafey settlement back in 2010, right, with the labels who owed us millions of millions of dollars because they couldn't find out who to pay mechanical royalties to. Um, I was, you know, I was at a label right before that. I understood the, the, the structure of mechanical licensing and how hard it was to find for a kid's bop release, you know, the, the third writer of a track that just came out six months ago. Um, you know, sometimes, you got to, you got to hear them out, see what the issue was, but I definitely think that was a win. I mean, you know, MMA, MLC, that was, a, that was a win for us. And it's been, it's been great. Uh, you know, starting 2021, we got, we got our first payment in April for January earnings. Um, having monthly royalties, it allows us to really kind of check in with them, make sure that we're getting everything we should be getting and not have to wait a quarter to figure out, oh, wow, we didn't get our number one, our number one single because it wasn't registered in time for their back office to catch it. No, now now we have a direct line to see what's registered, when it's registered, and we're doing it for CWR or other fronts, you know, a common works registration. Um, that's that's the, that's the change, and I think it's for the better. Let's take a step back because there were three acronyms. You used a fourth and you just uh, CWR, which you just uh, uh, said what it was. But let's take a step back because you mentioned going back um, MFN, most favored nation. So explain that again. And then you, you said MMA created the MLC. So then we'll ask what that is. Because I know there are a lot of people listening who uh, probably don't get publishing, as we said. So these are terms that are probably sure. new to them or reinforcing something they forgot. Absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry about the acronyms. Um, so 
uh, MFN Most Favored Nations basically says that if you put this clause in your contracts or your licensees, you'll basically get the higher rate if someone negotiates a higher rate. Um, so let's say Reservoir negotiates a rate, you know, and these are just totally, I'm making these up, like a dollar per play. And then we'll say that, you know, Roundhill negotiates a dollar fifty per play. If we have an MFN clause, we get Roundhill's rate. Um, that that's happened actually quite a few times for us where we've entered into a settlement as a group and the majors were actually part of the MFN and we've got the benefit of them. Uh, Snap being the most recent one I can think of where you know negotiations with the majors stalled out. It kind of continued after we closed ours and the majors got the rate higher. So our rate jumped and we get the benefit of that. So that's MFN. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Let me ask you this question because this, so how, do you know that the majors get a higher rate? How do you, let's, let's say you got a dollar or the round hill version, you got a dollar, round hill gets 150. Cause this is the same with, with sync deals and all sorts of deals out there where there are these MFN clauses in there. How do you know that the other party got a higher rate? Are you, is it faith? Is it trusting the company doing the license that they're going to go back and tell you that, you know, how do you know? Well, well, I mean, part of it has to be, but you have to have a relationship with those people. Like, you mentioned Sync on the Sync side. You know, when you're talking to music supervisors, that has to be a relationship you have as someone in Sync licensing. You know, you have to have that trust. You have to sort of have have that that sort of, you know, faith is a is, is a word I guess you can use for it. But you know, for us on on the Snap front, that was NMTA, right? We have either in-house or external legal counsel that that basically understands what's going on with the rest of the industry or is helping negotiate what's going on with the rest of the industry. Um, so there, there, it's helpful to have that. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's really just a relationship basis. Understanding what they're doing, having contacts with other music publishers is great. Um, not only for, for reasons like this, but, you know, for reasons for hiring. And there's a, there's a plethora of reasons why you'd want to have contacts with other music publishers or, or record labels. Um, to know how people do things there versus how you do things there. You're like, in my opinion, if there's a better way, we should be doing it, right? Um, if you think there's an easier way, there probably is. So um, I think the same thing goes for, for MFN. Like, you know, if you negotiated the rate down, you think there's probably a better rate, ask around. Um, you know, if you have somebody in your same role doing the same thing, um, they'll probably tell you because they want to know what you're getting too, so they can understand their MFN clause and how that works. So that, that's really the way to do it. Yeah, good. Yeah, that makes sense. Talk now about, you mentioned the MMA created the MLC. Can you get into that? Yeah. Right. So the Music Modernization Act um, created the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Um, So MMA was to establish a set of rules um, to basically modernize how we, uh, you know, make money and royalties on streaming, um, which is modern, modern music consumption. Out of that, said, okay, well, how do we do it? Let's create an organization, in this case, Mechanical Licensing Collective, that would license publishers' rights to the streaming platforms, paid by the streaming platforms, and pay the publishers based on the statutory rate at a monthly basis or on a monthly basis. Um, And and in doing so, this platform would also be transparent uh, to the point where we can see what was registered, not by you know, just our first party data, but also by other publishers registering the same songs for their writers. Um, that helps with conflicts in case they're claiming the same shares we're claiming. That helps with, you know, claims over 100%. Uh, you know, the pizza guy gets 5% is always a thing that comes up in hip hop. Uh, we, we notice that, you know, some fifth guy comes out of the woodwork 10 years down the road and throws the whole thing in dispute for a song that, you know, you've earned millions of dollars on. So this would give us a little more transparent look into that. Uh, and, uh, you know, HFA or Harry Fox Agency was the, the company who actually won out the bid to be the back office for MLC. Um, so a lot of those systems we had already known. We've been working with them for quite a while, uh, you know, being a music publisher. So it, it was a it was a nice logical progression to to move to it. But it's been good. Um, like I said, we got a first payment in April and it's only been going up since there. But, you know, with back pay, not having to wait a quarter or go to them for retroactive statements on, on songs that they may have missed or shares that may have not been registered in time. With that monthly turnaround, things are good. Things are happening a lot more frequently and our, our quarterly and semi-annual writers are very happy. 
Yeah, that's great. And for the uh, people listening, and we went back to that whole point of a song has two parts, what you hear and then the underlying composition. If somebody uploads a song and through DistroKid, for example, they need to make sure that DistroKid is paying them their royalty for the streaming of the sound recording. But DistroKid is not paying them for their performance rights, the public performance royalty. So if you're a self-made indie artist and you put up your own song, so DistroKid will pay you for the sound, but you need to then sign up with ASCAP or BMI to get your public performance. And then you also need to sign up with the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, right? Collective is the C. I always forget the C. Yeah, Collective. And they'll yep. get the mechanical royalty for you from every DSP in the United States. It's not international. It's just for the U.S. But that is free. And all you have to do is register for it. And um, here's where you brought up a point earlier about the administration of all these songs is there's a term called metadata where you need to make sure you get every songwriter correct, every piece of information around that song correct when you register it with all these organizations so that it's very clear so that you can earn your revenue that is coming to you because you have everything right from the, the beginning. I'm sure you see metadata from years old that was entered by an intern or, or who knows, and it's wrong and you're trying to, to fix that for, for a long time to pay those who need to get paid what they are deserving. Oh yeah. Metadata is king, not only for, for labels, but also for publishing nowadays. Um, so the biggest parts of metadata, I think nowadays on the administration department, and look, it's been this way for a long time, but we're really trying to clean it up, um, is ISRCs and ISWCs, right? International Standard Recording Codes, International Standard, standard um, Work Codes. Work normally refers to publishing, so when I say work, that's kind of what I mean. Uh, recording normally refers to master, so recording. So those two identifiers are huge. Um, now, the confusing thing to most people is that you know one ISRC can have hundreds of ISWCs, right? I mean, yeah, you could basically be at a point where there's, you know, there's, uh, I'm sorry, the other way around. One ISWC has hundreds of ISRCs, where a cover could be happen, happening over and over and over again. Or you know derivatives are being made, and different ISRCs or different recordings are being made from that one composition, and and that's one of the hardest things to track for as a music publisher, right? As a label, you understand, okay, this is my artist, that's the recording for that artist. Anywhere that recording is made, I can fingerprint, I can probably track through a software system and find out where it's going to be. But let's talk about UGC, right? UGC or user-generated content like that on YouTube has become, I can play, you know, a song. A Bob Dylan song on guitar in my bedroom. And if I own the copyright for that, I can't fingerprint that to figure out where it is. I have to have a really smart software system to track that. So it's important that we can embed, that's what they call it on, on YouTube's back end, we can embed our copyright claim, our, or, you know, our publishing claim on the song recording, right? So basically any time that that cover is used or shared or you know, put anywhere, we can follow it. So those two codes have been so you know, important to, to make sure that they're matched and that the right ISRCs are attached to the right ISWC and vice versa. Um, that's really been a challenge over the past, you know, 10 years. But, but I think we're getting to a part of a point right now where most royalty systems would allow you to have it on there. Most registrations would allow you to send, you know, your ISWC code. Um, so with those two things, I, I think it's very, very helpful. And, and not just in the U.S. Like when I say international, I mean international. We use, uh, you know, we use Impel uh, as a pan-European licensing coalition, and they register our, our copyrights and make sure we're being collected properly in Europe, um, you know, 27 so odd countries. That is very, very imperative to give them the right metadata because, you know, that's going to translate to a bunch of other covers over in Europe, some with different translations, some with different shares. And you just want to make sure that those two codes are, are really tracked properly and that you have the right metadata in your system, which as you alluded to, an intern, you know, 10 years ago could have put in wrong, but um, Spotify is great. They have Spotify for publishers. That's great. That helps for this. Nielsen is great. It's another tool we use um, to make sure we're having the right ISRCs. Um, You know, tools like that are available to us to make sure that that's the case. I didn't know there was a Spotify for publishers. That is interesting. That is cool. Yeah. Did yeah, you- we were part of the beta testing. We like to be part of beta wherever we can, because, you know, at some point it's going to, it's going to, go live and we want to be the first to kind of know about it. But yeah, it's really great. 
it allows you to export basically you know everything they have in the system through an API that they have with their you know, with their main system, and you you get the the link, you get the Spotify URI, you get basically everything you wanted to track the the actual recording and to track your composition against the recording. And I should say because we were talking then about the ISRC and the ISWC. So those listening, you get the ISRC. Generally, if you're an independent artist, you're getting it from DistroKid. So you're getting, you upload the song and DistroKid, for example, or TuneCore, whichever, or the other aggregator that you're using. Right. Um, they, you upload your song, that system automatically generates that code for you. So all you do is you go to the page where you, uh, the song page in that, on the back end there, and it, it'll say ISRC, it'll give you your UPC, you mentioned the uh, Spotify UPI. Was that the number? Because that you have to get through Spotify, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah. That's harder yeah, to the find. The URI, now. I think. URI. That's it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ISRC, uh, if you go through DistroKid, uh, TuneCore, they're going to give it to you. It's something, especially if you're doing YouTube monetization for YouTube, because a lot of those services do provide that as an as a offer. Um, they're going to give you the ISRC, which is kind of king, right? And then everything else will follow. The ISWC, very, you know, very sparse when it comes compares to ISRC. You really have to have sort of your your finger on the publishing side for that. Um, th that I think is a little harder. You're, you're really probably not going to get there. But like you had mentioned, if you registered with the PRO, ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, now GMR in the U.S., they'll help you with that, right? They'll they have a, a system that I'll talk to each other, especially ASCAP and BMI called SongView. You'll be able to go on there and see your, your registered copyrights. They'll link the ISWC for you. And that way you have that metadata in addition to your sort of arsenal of songs as an independent artist. Yeah, that's true because actually um, I'm really, I'm fairly familiar with BMI, but I've done a lot of things with ASCAP. And if you look at the works page, when you enter songs, it doesn't generate immediately, but within a couple of days, there is an ISWC number that they give to you. And if you're an independent artist, what you should do is keep your own metadata sheet, which has the name of the song, all the song, songwriters, the ISRC, the UPC, the ISWC, keep all that on one sheet. And then it's always in one place and you don't, and you just do it as you go. Um, it's a pain in the neck to administer, but if you do it as you go, eventually you're gonna need that information in bulk form for the MLC or for Sound Exchange or for some or for a publisher, if they're going to cut a deal with you and they're going to need all that information from you, or if you sign a deal with a distributor like an Empire or something like that, somebody's going to need all that information mm -hmm. at some point. So you might as well keep that data as you go, as opposed to all right, I need that in 24 hours, and now you're up till three in the morning and you can't find it, and you keep going to Google. Where do I find this? Where do I find that? And you're crying. So yeah. Well, it'll, it'll also delay payment for you. You don't want to delay payment to yourself. You know, it's kind of silly. You, you know, if, a, if you sign a deal with a publisher in your Schedule A, your Schedule A of songs is, is basically just, you know, a song title and who wrote the song. The publisher's going to have a lot of questions for you. You know, you know, what PRO are you affiliated with? Do you have work numbers for these codes? You know, what are the recordings associated with these songs? So it's better to have your ducks in a row. But I think those companies do a pretty good job. Um, you know, DistroKid, um, I, think, I think I know a few people who use that. TuneCore is more of a prevalent one I think most people use. You know, they want to make money off you too. They want to make their, their commission, uh, which is why they do YouTube. Um, I'm not sure if they do SoundExchange um, administration. They, they may. SoundExchange, they're, they're, they're a harder hurdle to, uh, to jump over. Uh, they have a lot of company policies, you know, because they were, they were put in place through the government. So they have like their red tape to jump over and, and cut through. Um, one of the hardest things I think in the industry nowadays is the fact that they won't remit royalties uh, to any rights holder who purchased them if the artist is still living. So if a living artist sold their artist share of performance royalties, that person who bought them could not directly get those royalties um, through one of their bank accounts. They, the sound exchange won't pay anyone but the living artist. It's been an interesting development, but you know there are workarounds to it. But you know, that, that kind of parallels completely differently to the way ASCAP and BMI work, uh, right? ASCAP and BMI will pay writer share royalties out to publishers now directly. That, that, that 20 years ago was a thing. Like ASCAP and BMI had the same issue sound exchange now has. So, you know, I think it'll evolve eventually, but, you know, currently that's been sort of a headache 
most people in the administration team. So even with a letter of direction that, but from the original no. saying pay rich, uh, sound exchange is still, no. yeah, we're gonna pay you. Yeah, they, they won't do it. They won't do it. As long as the artist is alive, they will not do it. Interesting. Okay. That's why the murder rate is so much higher. Uh, <laughs> Artists, that's why they're, they're dying off. It has to do, it's, it ties totally into sound. So. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's not the fact that they're, you know, all baby boomers. It has nothing to do with that. No, they, they were they were killed because of those sound exchange royalties. That yeah. Purchase. Yeah. There's a sound bite for you. Rich Scott the Purple from Reservoir Media said that sound exchange kills artists. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. And this is a true story. We're not making this up. Listeners think we're kidding. We are not. This is truth. And uh, you, I found it on Facebook. So there we go. We <laughs> out of time. But one final thing I'd like to get into, and my apologies that we never got into your backstory. Um, if yeah. you, do you want to give us the sixty-second bio, and then I have one more question about neighboring rights for you. Why don't we give us your sixty-second bio of who you are, so you can earn this uh, high level of of speech that you've been doing for the last near hour? Yeah. No. No. That's fine. Yeah, I thought it'd be important, especially people who are listening to this from Willie P. Yeah, so, you know, just a regular Joe, uh, you know, for Bergen County here, I, I got into accounting at Montclair University, figured out it wasn't for me. Uh, you know, Marconi, Mr. Marconi was uh, the lead of the program there at Willie P. back in 04. I decided to, you know, get into the music program there. I studied music business and accounting. Uh, actually, my major was actually music, uh, was, was uh, management, and I, I did a minor in music business. Um, but I did my internship there at Sony. I worked, and this is dating myself, I worked in the digital products group, marketing ringtones, um, which was fun back in 05. And then, you know, from there, I just made some industry contacts. And I, I got my first job at Razor and Tie Records uh, as a royalty clerk. Uh, it happened to be that way because of my business background. I was, you know, in accounting and music business, so it only made sense for me to go into royalties. And, um, you know, from there, I kind of just moved my way up the ladder in royalties and stayed there. That's where I am now, VP of royalties and copyright at Reservoir. But um, yeah, I spent a few years at Razor and Tie until about 2011. And that's when our president, um, COO, Rella Farg, kind of snagged me away. Good thing he did, because a few years later, they were bought out by Concord. Um, so that was a nice jump to do. But, you know, I've been at Reservoir now for well, 10 and a half years. And, uh, yeah, we started off with four people in a little one-room office in Soho, and now we are, uh, geez, I think we're over 80 employees now with offices, like you mentioned at the top of the call, in five different countries. And um, we're a public company as of July, so it's a really, really fun ride. And then you guys also do take interns. Uh, you've, we've had interns uh, go to you, but you guys do take interns from universities, colleges. Absolutely, any, anywhere, really. Um, you're studying music business or you wanted to get into music business and you're interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. Interns every semester, we have a really, really great and bright round of them. There's an interview process like, like there would be for any other internship. But I think what we do that's different than most is, you know, we don't have you go fetch bananas or get coffee for us. Right. We we have you do actual work. Um, we're a lean team. We need the help. So especially on the admin team, I can tell you. It's, you'll see royalty statements, you'll put in royalty statements. You, you know, you'll see actual licenses that I'm talking about doing with these PSPs. You'll, you'll get to have firsthand experience, firsthand knowledge of the kind of what goes on at a music publisher and a record label because we need the help. <laughs> That's, you know, we're growing so fast sometimes that the interns don't realize they're coming into it and then we throw them into the pit. And they're like, wow, this is great, but I didn't, I didn't expect to be doing this. So. That's, that's great. I'd like to have an internship in Abu Dhabi. Can you work that out for me? Yeah, you would, right? Just yeah, that. Funny. I mean, look, that that was a great that was a great partnership that we have with with Spec, um, who's who's heading up our Papa Ravi team over there, and he launched our first. Um, you know, he launched Esma, which is the first clutch and starting in the Middle East. So it's been really exciting over there. Um, we're we're emerging markets is really where it's at. But it, he not only got us into the Middle East, but he also had a contact with um, Outistry who we're, we're now investing in, who's a Chinese uh, company, you know, administering copyrights in that territory, both for local content as well as Anglo-American content. So great partnership to have Specs. Great. He worked with us in New York for years. Um, and now he's back in Abu Dhabi running things. That's great. Okay, final question. Um, oh, by the way, when I said that's great, I said it really quickly as if I didn't care. That's really great there. Now, 
passion <laughs> behind the statement. Like I care about what you had to say, even though I kind of didn't. You're uh, pushing it along. I get it. I understand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're all phonies. Okay. So final question, neighboring rights. What can you tell us briefly about neighboring rights? Because it seems confusing, especially in the United States, because we don't talk about it so much in the U.S. as Europe, for example. Can you get into that for a second? To keep it general, neighboring rights are performance royalties for labels and artists, right? Um, if you have a, a performance on radio, TV, um, they're gonna they're gonna collect. There's societies that, that collect it for you for naming rights and companies that collect it for you. We we actually go through PPL, um, but there are other companies out there who do something similar. And and what they do is similar to what ASCAP and BMI do for us here in the states. Um, they collect those royalties and distribute them to both the artists and the label owners. But so, that's basically it in a nutshell. All right. So it's closer to sound exchange than it is to... An yeah, but the, the, the sti distinguishing difference between sound exchange and a neighboring rights company is neighboring rights would collect a performance right on both the, the stream as well as sort of a terrestrial classical approach of performance, right? Sound exchange does not collect on anything that's terrestrial. They only do streaming royalties. So, you know, that's the, the big difference there. Again, as I, as I mentioned at the top of the call, is that there is no US-based terrestrial radio for record labels. So that's sort of the distinguishing difference. Very similar sound exchange in PPL and other companies that do neighboring rights. But the one defining difference is the fact that one can collect terrestrial radio and the other one can't. Okay. Yeah, and that's a huge deal for uh, that we mentioned the uh, Music Modernization Act of, I guess it was 2018, 2017, 2018. And one thing left out of that was a royalty from radio, especially in the United States, royalty to uh, record labels, to sound recording copyright owners in the United States, because uh, the radio, terrestrial radio, especially your Z100 in New York, only pays the pros. They don't pay for the sound recording. And so I know there's a, another movement in Congress right now on both sides, representing radio and representing artists and trying to get that changed or kept status quo. And we'll see if that goes anywhere. I, I still don't think that's going to happen yet. I think yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. It, it seems pretty stagnant, you know, with this, this administration, but I think I'm hopeful that happens. Like I think they're due the royalties, you know, honestly, it really stinks that labels can't get that done. And, you know, it's been for years now. But they're going to hide behind that whole marketing thing. Radio markets here. And they've been saying that for decades. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But we, we on our collective, you know, NMPA National Music Publishers Association, we're all behind it. Like, we'll, we'll, you know, we're all lobbying for them, too, to get that right. Um, similar to the way they're lobbying for the best rates for us. Sometimes. So, you know, hopefully, I, I think definitely the industry has become closer, especially with music publishers doing 360 rights. And, and labels doing 360 rights, we're all kind of talking to each other more now than we were years ago. And, and hopefully that leads to, you know, bigger and better things, more revenue being the main one. Yeah. And I think that sort of ends where we are. And I think um, there are only bigger and better things and more revenue coming for Richard Scott DePerto ah, in the future. No, you know, Scott's, uh, Richard Scott DePerto is actually going to get fired soon and lose everything. So, um, <laughs> No, we don't want that. So, well, okay, see, I'm a public company now. So if I said something wrong, I definitely will. That, that's, oh, that's right. So you have to be very careful with what you say. So that's, that's very good. And, that's right. um, it's good. So, um, so we're going to end this now. And we'd like to, again, uh, wish our, uh, our, our best wishes to Dr. Esteban Marconi, who couldn't be here with us today. He'll hopefully be here with us next time. And you know what we say at the end of every radio show podcast? Do you have any idea what we say at the end? I have no idea. No, and there's no way you should unless you were an avid listener of every single episode and you're not. We don't say hello to be redundant and silly. So at the end, we say, Adios!
never let you in Cause it hurts 